0: the roots of our monetary system, our Norwegian roots goes back all the way to the Viking age and the year 1050. This is a policy that we have had uh, for very long. It's basically the same policy, just a different shape. When you introduced inflation to the calculation, they got a higher salary, a higher payment for the work they were doing. When they were in reality receiving a lower payment because the value of the money had gone down. I'm very happy that I discovered Bitcoin and gradually begin to understand more about what it can be in the future for us. Bitcoin is sort of like a bridge between slavery and freedom.
1: Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Sudofin. Today we're joined by Rune Östgård, the Norwegian author of *Fraudcoin: Coin, A Thousand Years with Inflation as a Policy, a book covering the history of money, inflation, and the birth of central banks. In our conversation with Rune, we go from Viking times to today's monetary system, and we discuss the importance of Bitcoin in our quest to regain monetary freedom. But before we start, we'd like to quickly remind you that the best way you can support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost on a value-for-value podcasting app like Fountain or Breeze. If you get value from the show, please consider sending us some value back. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe to the channel, and turn on notifications so you never miss a weekly episode. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, OrangePill App, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description, and we'll be talking a bit more about them later. And so, without further ado, here is Runa Östgård on the Freedom Footprint Show. Runa Östgård, welcome to the show. It's the Freedom Footprint Show. Welcome.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, good to have you here, Rune. You uh, gave me a book. All of a sudden, I got a book in my mail. This is, this is your book, Fraud Coin. And then there's a Norwegian title here, A Thousand Years with Inflation as a Policy. I guess it's the uh, English subtitle, right? If I hmm. translate it quickly. You were nice uh- enough to give me a copy of, of your book. And uh, confession time, I haven't read it yet. I just didn't have the time. But this is very nice. I've I've skimmed through it and I, I get the gist of it. It's basically what we Bitcoiners talk about all the time. That um, fiat currency is is the root of all evil. Money is not, but fiat currencies are. And you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you are not from the from the Bitcoin angle originally, but you may may have uh, stumbled upon Bitcoin while researching fiat currency. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's uh. That's right. I define myself as a Bitcoiner now, these days, after uh, nice. getting to know quite a lot of the Bitcoiners who read my
2: book. Yeah, I so uh, Hodlonauts has, has written a couple of words about it here. Uh, mm. And uh, this, this is an extremely important book uh, is one one sentence he wrote in there. Uh, and I think it is that it's it's funny, because the you have the same story as Jeff Booth, you know that when he wrote the, the his book the price of tomorrow he was not a bitcoiner and he, he he was aware of cryptocurrencies but hadn't yet made the distinction uh that there can only be one so to speak only one deflationary currency so so uh give us the tldr about the book uh what what is it about and what made you uh what made you write it and like When did you fall down this rabbit hole? And and why? And a bit of background too, please?
0: Yeah, I can start with a a little bit of background. Um, I I went to law school, uh, finished law school 25 years ago. So I'm 50 years old now. Uh, I have a background, which is quite varied. Uh, I spent most of my time in the private sector. And I'm currently working in my own uh, law firm in States Edge. It's a small, typical small town law firm. Uh, and uh, I've also been working uh, some years in the public sector, I have three years of experience from the European Commission. And uh, while I was working there back in 2002 to 2005, uh, I um, stumbled the. Uh, Upon, uh, Ayn Rand's books, uh, first I started with uh, Atlas Shrugged, which you might have read and, uh, read several of, of her books. And I also noticed that uh, she had uh, consulted Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian uh, economist. So I decided I had to check out, uh, what, what he was up to within his uh, field. And, uh, uh, yeah, that, that was sort of my, uh, how I stumbled down the, the rabbit hole. So in, in 2008, when we had the financial crisis, I read a lot of uh, economics, uh, mainly Austrian economics. And I, uh, without knowing it, then four days after uh, Satoshi published his uh, white paper, I um, uh, had uh, an op-ed in uh, a bigger Norwegian newspaper about the uh, financial crisis and uh, and the, the roots of our monetary system, uh, our Norwegian roots, which uh, goes back all the way to the Viking Age and the year 1050. So I just explained that this is a policy that we have had uh, for very long. And that it's basically the same policy, just a different shape. There's some different uh, Different details, uh, now, um, with electronic money. Apart from that, the policy is, is basically the same. Uh, and, uh, yeah. After that, I, 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 or at that time, I didn't have anybody to talk to about this subject. I wasn't aware of Bitcoin or anything. And, uh, very few Austrian economists in, in Scandinavia, I think. And, uh, so I just, I gave up sort of the whole intellectual project at that time uh, because I didn't have anything anyone to talk to and uh, just felt the system was backwards and uh, this went the, the wrong way. Um, I decided just to to take care of my <laughs> my family and focus on ordinary life. So I'm more or less blue-pilled myself after having been red-pilled for for some years. And uh, then we got to the pandemic in uh, the year 2020. I wrote my first book after a quick clay landslide in Gjerdrum, where 11 people got killed, because I had some experience uh, from from that area. Uh, And last summer, yeah, there you have it. And uh, that only exists in Norwegian at the moment, but uh, yeah, we'll see. So, last summer, twenty twenty two, when uh, the price inflation reared its ugly head throughout the whole of the world, uh, I decided to follow up on my op-ed from uh, two thousand and eight, uh, and and uh, yeah, use that op-ed as um as as the basis for a book, a short book on inflation. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah. So that's the background. Uh, so what's the book all about? Well, I think the most important uh, message in the book is that inflation is a policy. Uh, that's also why I used uh, that subtitle, 1000 years of inflation as a policy. And, uh, I call the book fraud coin because fraud means, as you know, to swindle someone. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, you couple it, couple it with the word coin, because it all started with coins also in uh, in Norway, in 1050. And I've written this book for the um, uh, average reader, you might say, uh, you should be able to read this book, uh, even if you are just an um, teenager, 18, 19 years old people, uh, uh, young people should be able to read it. Um, And I I think my my hope was to write a book, which explains inflation is in a very engaging way and makes uh, inflation possible to understand for everybody, absolutely everybody. Uh, So I used some, I, I think it's a 50 pages or something like that. The top uh, number of pages is 170 or something like that. So 50 of the uh, pages are dedicated to the historical development of the inflation policy. Uh, and the uh, rest of the book is about the system uh, as we have it uh, today, uh, as the system is today and uh, what it uh, does with the society, uh, etc. And I also have a part there which is quite interesting. It's it's about the uh, sort of how um, how the theoretical framework, if you can call it that, developed uh, the last one hundred years with the fight between Keynes uh, uh, and, uh, and Irving Fisher in the United States under the Frisch, French and a Norwegian professor on the one side. And the Austrians on the other side, so that's also a chapter which is which I think people find. Uh, they tell me that uh, that's very interesting for people to read. So, yeah, that was uh, more or less uh, me and my background and the, the book uh, summarized. Nice. Uh,
2: so you said you you fell into the Austrian economics rabbit hole around uh, like two thousand. In the early two thousands, I guess, or mid two thousands, and
0: you read uh, Mises around two thousand eight, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I read a lot of Austrian economics books between two thousand three and two thousand eight. Oh, nice. Because I, I know, I know from experience,
2: from like my experience with reading Mises and the reading Human Action is like the most eye opening book ever. It felt like reading Newton about physics or something. It's like why haven't i heard about this discipline yeah. this is like uh, as important as mathematics and i have simply haven't heard of it, it but it's it explains very thoroughly and very easily like uh, i i think it's people find it hard to read but it's basically because it's a long thick book with long sentences in it but the sentences aren't that hard to follow it's very logic <laughs> so uh and it is, as you say, like uh, inflation is nothing but a policy. And uh, I, I guess the, the the coin thing is is interesting. You know, the edges of coins, the the uh, curved edges of coins, is to prevent coin clipping from be- from the beginning, because that's that's how what coins ended up being. Mm. Uh, they, they ended up having these edges because people used to clip from them. But of course, there can only be one legitimate counterfeiter in the society and that's the bank uh, or the central bank even worse uh so they 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 introduced those jagged edges to uh, to prevent anyone else from doing the same fraud as they did basically now it's w- when you think about it and um, a thousand years like uh, explain uh in uh, how how did the vikings do that? how did uh How did counterfeiting or quantitative easing happen uh, a thousand years ago? What what started it? What what, what's the beginning of of, okay? Yeah,
0: banking. Um, The the beginning of it was that it all started actually here in Trøndelag in my region because that that was a sort of a a loosely integrated region in the Norwegian state. The state was quite young then, uh, just after uh, year Klausen. Uh, so, in, in that period, we had a very special law, uh, which was called the Shrostating law. Uh, it had a provision, which you didn't find in any of the other Nordic laws, um, which th- said that if the king, who um, uh, if the king wanted to take someone's property, you know, tax them or put levies on them, it, it, he he would need to have the consent from the frosta that was a sort of the regional parliament, which consisted of the the uh, the farmers, you know, the bigger farmers and uh, the earls, the local earls, and if he. If it if he didn't obtain their consent and he still took the property of someone they were obliged to uh, try to kill him. And if they didn't succeed in killing him, they were uh, obliged to uh, hunt him uh, down and chase him out of the country. So that was actually what happened in the uh, year twenty no uh, one thousand twenty eight. And they chased one, of the, the 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 guy who was king at that time, out of the country. Uh, he came back and tried to take back uh, Trøndelag and uh, his uh, uh, no, uh, and and uh, the Norwegian kingdom, but he didn't succeed. He was killed uh, in a battle in uh, 1030 uh, at Stiklestad, And later on, he was. Uh, um, Canonized, as they call it, uh, he was, uh, uh, and he was referred to as Saint Olaf. You might have heard about uh, Saint Olaf. Yeah, name rings well. Yeah, uh, we a... He was a he was a tyrant. He was a, yeah. a really an evil king, and was hated in in my district. But his uh, half brother Harald Sigursson. He uh, managed to uh, escape from the battle. Uh, he wasn't wounded but he he escaped and he went to um, Constantinople. Uh, that's Istanbul. Istanbul. And yeah. Today's Turkey. And, the, the, um,
2: the Vikings called it called it Miklagord, I believe.
0: That's correct. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah,
2: what, you know, what's the other name? Busans? Uh Bisons. And yeah. uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, Miklagord. the i I'm sure there's a fifth name also.
0: But I believe the Vikings called it Miklagård. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he served as um, one of the, I think he was the main officer in the, uh, they call it the Varing, Varing Garden, that's the emperor's uh, private uh, guard, you might say. And uh, they were very su- su- successful in many battles Whatever. where they were involved. Yeah. So he, but in, I think it was in 1046 or 45 or something like that. He, he went back home to Norway and became uh, a new king. And in 1050, I, he killed the, the, the sort of uh, most powerful man in Norway. He, Situated in Trondheim, in, uh, sort of, uh, the, which was the capital in Trondheim, in my region, so he killed him and his son uh, Eindrede. and uh, uh, then he started. Uh, uh, he he built a mint, a mint in uh, Trøndelag in, uh, in Trondheim, and uh, in uh, another city called uh, Hamar. so he basically copied what he had learned uh in uh, in Istanbul what the emperor did there with um his uh monetary policy so uh, he uh, required that uh, everybody who uh, received his you know his coins as payments the coins uh which were uh which were struck in his mint. Everybody had to, to accept those coins. If they didn't, they risked the death penalty. So this was in 1050 and that's almost 1000 years ago. And uh, that's basically the beginning of a uh, Norwegian and the uh, Viking age uh, monetary policy, inflation policy.
2: How about this? Uh... Of course, but but you said he he uh, got the practice from from Istanbul, so so it was obviously going on in other parts of the world already, and I guess I guess counterfeiting is as old as as money itself, in that yeah, sense. It might, yeah. it might be
0: uh, yes. mm-hmm. uh, So he uh, he he reduced the silver content uh, from ninety percent to thirty percent or something like that. Yeah, uh, within uh, as little as sixteen years, uh, so wow. yeah, I guess it trickled, trickled the money supply within sixteen years, quite a lot. Yes, uh, it makes me
2: think of, of Swedish monetary history. We had the first central bank, <laughs> uh, which was basically a cartel of other private banks that did the same thing. Uh, so the they. Managed to legitimize counterfeiting, basically. That's that's mm. the, the basic story. And I, every country has similar stories. And it's so weird when you start seeing this uh, for what it is, and you realize that everyone in power in every country since the invention of money or the discovery of money has been a counterfeiter. Like it, it's fraud, all all of it. Not just, <laughs> just, just not just here and there. There have been periods of more or less fraud so i guess on a gold when during la belle epoque and all of this when when uh, huge parts of the world were on a gold standard when when most of the biggest swedish and norwegian companies were started by the way like they they all began during this gold standard era uh, 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 but but that is the anomaly and uh, and all other ages have had more or less counterfeiting and I mean, the banknote itself is a receipt for gold. Uh, it, mm. that, that's it, it. Comes from its original purpose was being a receipt for gold in a vault somewhere, and that's mm. that's the, those bankers that ha- held the gold in their vaults quickly realized that they could print more receipts than they actually had gold in their vaults, because mm. because the risk of everyone wanting to withdraw their gold at the same time was so low. Mm. And then when they realized the fraud, the bank run was born and the bank run uh, mm. led to the formation of the central bank, which mm. basically prevented bank runs from happening by being a lender of last resort and just bailing the other and, banks out. And it's wh- when you think about what it actually is and what it actually means, it's it's mass theft over generation after generation after generation, mm. like, like you say, for a thousand years of just Theft from everyone, uh, hmm. and it hurts the lowest classes in society the most, of course. Hmm. So, so it's it's like uh, a, a taxation policy. Uh, it's like a reverse progressive tax in in a way, uh, hmm. in, inflation, because it hits those with the least amount of resources the most. Hmm. And if you if you own assets, you can actually make money from inflation because your house goes up in value in quotation marks because it doesn't really go up in value but the the money goes down in value so in comparison your house mm. becomes worth more and more so people who own stuff uh feel richer and richer because of this yeah. and and those on the on the lowest levels of society they put they pay for the whole ordeal uh with their blood sweat and tears and they have been for a 1000 years and it's it's so disgusting when 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 you really start seeing it for what it is uh you you said that you you sort of blue pilled yourself uh, i guess uh bitcoin wasn't around at that time so so once once you fall down this austrian economics rabbit hole i mean i didn't really fall down deeply into it until after bitcoin uh, but if you do and you see the world for what it is i mean it's quite a bleak outlook how how did you manage to like uh, blue pill yourself again to like not not think about it too much and like was was that mm. tough? Like was it depressing? What what know yeah, What's the story there?
0: So the story is that I had spent some six seven years uh, reading uh, Austrian economics and uh, reading every everything I could find on the uh, lourockwell.com, You know the web page, perhaps. And uh, uh, but I didn't have anyone to talk to. Uh, about this. Uh, uh, and if I tried to talk to my friends or economists that I knew, they just shook their heads and they weren't interested. They, this was sort of uh, settled, uh, said the economist. I yeah, didn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, my it's so friends funny
2: who, because economists aren't economists. <laughs> you might say yes. yeah, be, yeah, because they're they're all, you know, uh, oblivious to the
0: most important aspect of uh, economics. It's quite ironic and many of them, I think, yeah. are waking up to this realization now, and uh, it must be hard for them to see that, uh, yet, I mean, they have studied for perhaps four, five, six years and then realize that they don't know shit about money <laughs> and that's quite special. I would sue the university if I was uh, that and discovered this, yeah. Good so, luck, yeah. <laughs> So, as a matter of principle, yeah. So, like, uh, I am um, I spent uh, six seven years uh reading a lot about this, but uh, you know, it you almost become I- I insane when you realize that uh, uh, nobody else uh, is interested and uh, knows this stuff, they don't give a shit, uh, and um. Uh, I, I had a daughter when, uh, yeah, in 2006. And, um, I just realized after a while that I, I needed to, uh, sort of to keep sanity or what, what you can call it, uh, and to focus on my family and my, my life, my, uh, my job as a lawyer. I, I just had to quit, uh, reading this, take a break. So I took a break. Uh, I had more or less red pilled myself, uh, during those years with reading. And then I decided to take the blue pill and, uh, yeah, just take a break from all of it. Uh, and then it all came back, uh, during the pandemic years so of 2020 to 2022.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, the, the only reason that I, in hindsight, that I, haven't you know taken the blue pill and just falling as fallen asleep again is 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 because of Bitcoin because it 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 gives you that beacon of hope that that there's a way out of this but mm-hmm. but the the analogy I'd like to make is like it feels like you're the only non flat earther in the room <laughs> like everyone else is a flat earther but even it's even worse than that because it's not only that everyone else believes in something false it's that everyone else believes in a fraud a pyramid <laughs> scheme and and uh, they believe whatever some the, the the most crooked guy in the room says is true and yeah. that is just horribly <laughs> depressing uh it, it truly is yeah it's weird but by the way the libertarians i, I know uh also in scandinavia you're quite lonely uh, with these libertarian ideas because no one else like they, they, either they find it too depressing or they don't have time to, to read up on the stuff or they're just not interested enough and like, why do you always have to question everything and like, oh, uh, it's all conspiracy theories and uh, why can't you just get a job and, and do what everyone else does? And that's basically the attitude around Scandinavia, I feel. But I found the the, the Swedish libertarians, at least, uh, they're all in you Prague. Did? Yeah. I went to Prague and they were all there. Yeah. <laughs> <Like all this. laughs> <laughs> A I, ton, tons of, of uh, Swedish libertarians in Prague. So I guess some of the Norwegians are there too. <laughs>
0: okay, uh, I, I, I th- that's my best that. guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but we have, yeah, we have quite a large uh, group of people who who know a lot about uh, Austrian economists now, economics now in Scandinavia, yeah. uh, at least in Norway. it uh, very, very big group of Bitcoiners that are very active. And uh, they know they know their stuff. So finally, I have some people to talk to and uh, yeah, share. I feel I have many people now with shared uh, values in this Bitcoin community. And, uh, yeah.
2: Good to hear. Yeah, it's it's starting to form in Sweden as well. But Norway has been ahead of the curve uh, in Scandinavia in terms of People who've been orange peel. and I, I think it might have to do with Norwegian history. I know from uh, from my sailing days that uh, when we traveled around in the fjords, they told us stories about how when the taxman came to the fjords and uh, tried to tax someone living up a hill in a fjord, they they just they they had a rope ladder and they just rolled it up so the taxman couldn't get them. So so like <laughs> uh, so so I feel N- Norwegians just because of the terrain of the country. That Norwegians have been more, you know, independent and more, you know, uh, able to to defend their own property and not have to give in to all of this. Mm. Uh, Sweden feels more flat and more community based in general, and like, yeah. Uh, uh, but Norwegians, but what you
0: what you point that there is very important, and uh, uh, it's one of my uh, messages in the book that we we should try to remember those periods when we were independent from the state. Yeah. And we didn't have any uh, inflation policy back uh, when uh, we had what I call in the book monetary freedom. Uh, you had the freedom to choose whatever money you would like uh, to use. And uh, that was basically how it was yeah. um, 1000 years ago, in my district in uh, in Trondland. Um, they used um, Coins from all of the all of the world, uh, Arabic coins and uh, uh, coins from other European countries, and uh, I think they were were quite prosperous uh, at that time. A lot of trade and monetary freedom as the basis. And uh, you mentioned uh, the the development of the first central bank in in Sweden. That's also part of. Uh, um, my book, I, I talk oh, even nice. about even about the precursor to, to the first central bank. That was a private bank set up by a Dutch guy named uh, Johan Palmstrup. Yes. You probably heard about that. And uh, I also uh, <laughs> write quite a lot about uh, the period, uh, the golden area in uh, the Netherlands. After they freed themselves, From the from the German Roman Empire, they had the revolution in the middle of the 16th century, and uh, for some period they had the monetary freedom as a basic principle. Uh, They didn't have any inflation policy. It's important to remember, understand, uh, and understand that period. And it's also important to to remember to trace back in, in. yeah, to the places where these policies originated. Uh, so I, I write a little bit about that also why they came up with this idea in uh, the Netherlands, that they want to have uh, monetary freedom. And also prior to the golden, uh, to the gold standard age, or era, uh, you had the, in principle monetary freedom also in the United States where people used uh, the, the coins that they liked best they used the spanish yeah. silver dollar etc tobacco, so, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> tobacco leaves even you know, yeah tobacco leaves yeah some skins uh, yeah you know and uh so they i think it's very important to to sort of uh, remind ourselves that this is possible this was possible for the monetary freedom and of course, it's possible to have it today as well. So that's that's my main message in the book. We uh, should do what we what we can in order to to promote monetary freedom in in our modern society.
2: Yeah, because the 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 opposite is is much worse than people think it is. Because uh, inflationary currencies lead to to the the inflation is that curve cannot be anything else than exponential. So it's a hockey stick curve. Eventually, Mm -hmm. it will hockey stick away. Uh, Because because of technology being exponentially better. Uh, The the analogy I'd like to make is like the simple screw. If you if you rewind the clock 150 years, there were no screws, they were just uh, spikes and nails and then the, the the screw was invented and you could screw it in by hand but that wasn't very efficient so if you if you if you look at the development of the screw and right uh, today we not only is there an, an electric screwdriver in every home but there are different types of screws for different purposes and there are robotic fa- completely robotic factories that that can screw in uh, countless amounts of screws every day like the efficiency of the common screw is so much bigger now than it was 150 years ago, and the the price of the screw and the price of the screwdriver ought to reflect that. So so because the cost of production is so much lower, the real cost of production. So if if money was honest, the, the prices of those things w- would have dropped and not gone up. But instead, hmm. instead we live in this world where where uh, inflation. Needs to keep up. It needs to be two to 3% per year. But as, you know, production efficiency and transportation efficiency goes up exponentially, that means that the money printing has to go exponential too, which at some point leads to hyperinflation. I mean, all fiat currencies are hyperinflating just at a different pace. Uh, that's the way i see it we're all living through yeah. after inflation some of us mm. are doing it in slow motion but but it's still it's just the, it's the same phenomenon as in mm. argentina or venezuela zimbabwe places like that mm. so uh, we we are going to have to pay for it sooner or later and we're we're mm. it's more it's more akin to rolling a snowball down a hill than kicking a can down the road because the snowball mm. gets bigger and bigger all the time and it's, it's going to crash into our descendants and our, our children are going to pay for the whole mm. the whole ordeal. There's no such thing as a free lunch. But people, people love politicians who promise them things that cannot, cannot exist. There's no such thing as a free lunch, as I said. Like mm. they, they keep on promising stuff that they cannot really afford. So, so mm. they just keep this everything bubble,
1: keep inflating the everything bubble. And it's very, very dangerous. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill App. Stack friends who stack sats. Meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill App. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill App helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. The best part is it maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to subscribe to access the app, you know that everyone there is high signal and cares about Bitcoin. A great new feature is events. You can now create local events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app to help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin only signal. Orange OrangePill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open source, non-custodial desktop Bitcoin wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. Double check that link. That's wasabiwallet.io. Bitcoin was such a relief
2: and just, you know, a remedy for the cynicism that, that comes with these insights uh, and such a, a beacon of hope, something at the end of the tunnel that isn't a, an oncoming mm. train for for once, like s- something to cling on to. So, so tell me about your your Bitcoin story. Like, I guess you wrote the book first and then Phil. Felt- did you have a shitcoin period? Who orange filled you? How how did you find Bitcoin? <laughs> how, how big was
0: Did hodl
2: not play in your journey and so on <laughs> and so forth?
0: You know, okay, so I decided that I had to write a little bit about crypto and Bitcoin. So uh, I I have a, a few pages in in my book about that. And I'm I'm uh, glad that I learned. So much that I could be able to separate crypto from Bitcoin. Luckily. Cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I was careful to not to write too much about something that, uh, wasn't sort of within my skills or knowledge there. So, um, that's, that's humble.
2: Yeah. I did the opposite. I <laughs> did. Yeah. I just
0: kept writing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hoping that some of it was true. <laughs> yeah, and, and when I had finished the book, I decided I just have to send the manuscript to some bitcoiners in order to to hear what their views uh, on of, of the book were. So I sent it to Eric Dahl. Probably know Eric. Don't oh him? yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the,
2: the, he's the guy that's uh, um, his whole thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's mm-hmm. doing the bargain thing. Uh, he's the guy behind that. So, uh, yeah. and uh, I met him. Last year, I was invited to his uh, Julemiddag in uh, in Bergen. That was cancelled because of the COVID policies. So we ended up spending uh, five days in a, in his cabin <laughs> in Law. <Galo>. I'm doxing <laughs> him a bit here, but with uh, with a okay. bunch of other Bitcoiners, uh, including Lot and Avi the Farmer and a couple of other guys. Oh, uh, and we, so yeah. we had a, a really swell time. Just you know eating and drinking and cross country skiing and uh, oh, uh, nice sauna. Doing sauna.
0: Fantastic. Just, uh, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. A lot of male love there. Oh, well, not that, not that kind of love, but we're close. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: yes I, met, I met all those guys that you mentioned there uh, after I um, published my book. And uh, yeah. um, as as mentioned, I, I I gave it to Eric and he was all the movement about it. And uh, he helped me to spread the word to the rest of the Norwegian Bitcoin community.
2: Yeah, he's, he's, he's a great, you know, spider in the middle of the web there in Norway. He's, he, he's really pulling the strings.
0: Definitely. Yes, he's very active and energetic. and uh, So positive. So I really like Eric a lot. And uh, yeah, I'm very Grateful for the help that uh, he has uh, given me. And, uh, um, yeah, just a few weeks after I had published the book, I went to, to Oslo for a podcast, my fir- first podcast ever. Uh, and then I met up with, uh, I met, uh, Hoblonot. Uh, and you know, Hodlonaut, he was in the, the court case yeah. with, uh, what's his name again? The Craig.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. yeah. yeah. The, the the man who should and, shall not be named on this pod.
1: I'm
0: sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, uh, uh, I I'm, 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 I'm friends.
2: I'm friends with Odonat since a couple of years back. We've done a lot of stuff together. And yeah. they, like last year up in Galo was the first time I met him in person. And uh, yeah. I okay. consider him a close friend. Uh yeah. And and a a a beacon, a a, a a stoic superhero. Uh, I think he has a yeah. very, very cool perspective on life. But go on. I'm, I keep interrupting you. Sorry about
0: that. No, no problem. Uh, it's nice to have uh, people who both of us know. And uh, I met Oddmund uh, the first time in Oslo. That was in, uh, I think it was it was in the end of November or something like that. And. Uh, I met him and Hovard firstly another Norwegian nice bitcoiners quite central in the bitcoin community in Norway. Can you hear me by the way yeah i'm i'm trying to uh, uh, pinpoint that name Hovar Fost. is that h a a i'm sorry
2: uh how do you spell that Hovar? uh h-
0: uh o- yeah, D- hovard. Hovardly. Hostly. Hostly. F-O-S-S-L-I, F-O-S-S-L-I. F for France. O for Oslo. Hostly. Yeah, ah, there he is. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I'm gonna follow him. Yeah, he's he also, he's also a great guy. So I All had it. lunch with those two, uh, at the same, uh, uh, and, and when we had the uh, lunch, um potlonek got a phone call. And it was his uh, lawyer who found him uh, to tell him that he had won the court case. So yeah. that happened uh, when we when we had lunch together. It was a, such a great moment and uh, just to experience. Uh, yeah, when I was when was this? In uh, November. November.
2: Yeah, because yeah. We, we were in Prague that same day, so we called we called Hodonot from from the restaurant in Prague when we heard the news. So that must have been just just an hour later or something.
0: Yeah, it must yes. have been. Yeah, yeah. And it was a great experience because, as you said, uh, Hodonot is a what do you call it? I call it a stoic. Yeah, a, a superhero. Yeah. Basically.
2: Super yeah, he's basically yeah. Captain America, but more like Captain Norway, more, more Viking-ish, more, it didn't need the serum. He's just born that way. And, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so he kept his calm before the phone call and also after the phone call. It was a sort of, yeah, very basic uh, guy. Yeah. The, but uh, very, but at the same time, a warm uh, type of man. Yes. He's, yeah and passionate at the same time, and it's uh, fantastic to see how he's able to combine those uh, skill sets or whatever you call it uh, my English is that right he right. <laughs> so, um so I was able to to meet uh, up with uh, several bitcoiners quite early after I published the book and uh, uh, that has been uh, a major part of my orange killing experience i guess uh, to see. To meet those guys and uh, also to to yeah. when I see when I follow other bitcoiners on Twitter and see what they write and yeah I understand that we have shared values so yeah, yeah that has been a very great experience yeah. uh, I must say uh, really it's really a bonus for uh, after writing the book but but
2: so are are you saying that you you got orange pill because of the charm of other bitcoiners like Captain Norway <laughs> and Eric the Duracell Rabbit, uh, Dolly, and all of these fantastic personalities. Or, or how how much of a deep dive did you do into the the technicalities of it? And and like, what what what's your journey there? Did you read up on it? or, or just as an investment, or just trust these guys? Or what?
0: Where are yeah. you on that scale? First of all, I haven't been investing too much in Bitcoin yet. So No, me uh, neither. I
2: lost it all in a
0: boating accident.
2: uh, Uh, Yeah, it's really tragic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a shame.
2: And and, uh, yeah, and the rest of it in a Zeppelin accident. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. You have to start all over again. But it's early as they say so. Yeah, Yeah. 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 No, um, uh, the technical side of it, that's not my strongest side. uh, Because I'm a lawyer for a reason. I'm not an engineer for a reason. And um, not, uh, not very much into computer uh, things, uh, neither. So, but, but I have to, I have tried to understand more and more of it, and and I, I read quite a lot about Bitcoin now these days. And uh, actually, uh, I am working together with a guy. His name is Mattis Storhaug. He's from uh, Trondheim, um, just south of uh, where where I live. Uh, and we are going to 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 make a short book on Bitcoin. Which aims at facilitating the quickest possible adoption of Bitcoin. Nice. So my, my impression is that there are very many people who knows, who know a whole lot about Bitcoin, but they are not able to explain, uh, too well what it's all about. What, what I mean with that is, the, it's difficult to explain it in a way which makes it easy for people to start buying Bitcoin and start becoming a part of the community. It's it's a challenge, and that's the challenge that uh, that uh, I and uh, Mattis is going to take on now. So we plan to have this book ready before before the summer. Sounds very good. I mean, um, yeah, I, I that's the real. Trick and like
2: that's that's what I do. Why what what I do? I guess it's it's just to try to explain these complex concepts in in layman's terms, because I believe the the best way of of actually getting to know something is to try to explain it to others. And some of the 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 shortest answer I have for the question what is Bitcoin these days is uh, it's just an agreement between people on a fixed set of rules, because that's that's. gist of it that's all it is Mm. and as long as we agree on this rule set we can we can we can play this game uh and the the way i see it the the you can deep dive into all the technical aspects but all you really want need to know is that uh could i understand this if i chose to deep dive into it and if the Mm. answer to that question is yes then you don't really need to so like could I understand elliptic curve cryptography? Well, I have the math skills sort of to 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 understand that. I could I could understand a mathematical mm. proof of that if I got it explained. So and that's like because you don't really need to know the maths. You just need to know mm. that this is a one-way equation. You can solve it by having X and Y, but you cannot solve it the other way around. Mm. And that's that's where the security comes from. So so all of these technical aspects. A lot of them, you can do the the, the shortcut of like, uh, could I understand this if if I wanted to mm. and, and then make that leap. And as far as trust goes, I mean, we all trust hardware, like no one or very few people understand how a computer chip works from the inside and how a motherboard mm. works, like all the intricacies of it. I mean, mm. a single person couldn't Construct a computer. A single person couldn't even construct a a, a, a fountain pen. Like it's <laughs> mm. things are complex, and there are, there is always some trust involved on some some levels. But the mm. but but Bitcoin, if you view it as just a language and a linguistic tool for expressing a, a certain subset of valuations, then it becomes way easier to understand and hmm. i i think the the uh the real the real battle to fight here i mean it's one thing to convince people to buy bitcoin but the real uh hyper bitcoinization begins when people start accepting bitcoin for their goods and services so when hmm. you offer offer to take bitcoin for for your goods and services it's not about spending them it's about earning them and, hmm. Enabling other people to spend theirs. That, I mean, that's hmm. that's where the real revolution lies. And uh, hmm. uh, I've I've seen I've been traveling quite a lot the last couple of years, and you see places where, I mean, it doesn't have to be a a constant place in time because these places, bitcoiners move all the time, and there's a lot of so called digital nomads in the space. But when, hmm. you're in, when you're in a place like Prague or Madeira, or w- where there are a lot of Bitcoiners at the same time as you are there, all of these monetary problems just go away because we can all use Bitcoin yeah. and we can all use the Lightning Network and we all, there's just this base layer of trust. Uh, ironically enough, this don't trust verify enables us to trust each other on a whole right. different level and all the monetary problems are just, they just disappear. Uh, mm. Of course, someone has fiat. Uh, so if someone's short on fiat, we just solve the problem. There's never a, never a monetary problem like that, and it's very interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, it puts a finger on how ridiculous the fiat system is, and and uh, this over government overreach into every every single aspect of every. You know, every uh, cup of coffee that someone sells in a cafe, they have to pay, pay a VAT tax, and every like the, every employee has to have this social security, and they all have to pay their taxes, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Well, we could just cooperate with one another and use language, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. so easy. It's so mm-hmm. easy, and w- w- when you when you live it, and when you see how easy it is to just use Bitcoin and be nice to one another. And exchange goods and services. I mean, you realize that all emperors are naked. There's, it's, it's all bullshit, and it's all, as you say, fraud coin. It's, it's a, a thousand year fraud that is still mm.
1: ongoing. And it, yeah, the show is also sponsored and produced by Consensus Network, the first Bitcoin only publishing house. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop or consensus.network to see everything Consensus has to offer. We're also always looking for new contributors, whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to us by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. And finally, you can check out KnutesFanholm.com for Everything Knut, including some great Everything Divided by 21 million merch and the Infinity Red Limited Edition Wine. That's KnutSvonholm.com for everything Knut.
2: Why do you think it is that, that these things aren't taught in schools? I mean, I understand that from the top and downwards that there are powerful people on the top that don't want people to realize what's really going on. <laughs> Uh, because they don't want to be called out, but I know there are a lot of good teachers out there. Like Hodlnot was a teacher for a couple of years. For <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, for Satoshi's sake. So, uh, so, so, why do you think it is that th- there's only this small minority? You said you were very lonely as a Norwegian libertarian, and I know the feeling exactly. Mm. Why do you think it is that people are so reluctant to open their eyes to this? Mm glaringly obvious fraud that has been in front of their eyes all their lives. And like, when you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm
0: -hmm. Why is that? Yeah, I sort of indirectly, I write about this subject in my book, when I describe uh, what happened uh, within uh, uh, economics, uh, some 100 years ago, when we first uh, had the Keynes. And also Irving Fisher in the United States, and uh, uh, finally they got on board on board Ragnar um, Frisch, uh, the Norwegian statistician, who became a professor in economics uh, at the University in Oslo. Uh, and uh, basically, they he and Irving Fisher worked together with uh, many other economists as well in the United States. And they, uh, uh, Ragnar fish cooperated with the Rockefeller Institution, which uh, actually financed uh, the first Institute of uh, Econ- Economics in the University of Oslo. So he financed uh, Ragnar Frisch's career and also everybody who, uh, I think uh, it was uh, several tenths of, uh, of um, assistants and other people in the Institute that worked for Ragnar Frisch to develop his theories and yeah push forward his career as an economist. And what happened in Norway was that he were able to get a stronghold uh, within the economics profession. So he educated all those economists who got the positions in the Bureau of Stat- Statistics, in the Ministry of Finance, and also later professors and the other workers in the Institute uh, in the University of Oslo. So he, he, he was basically shaping the whole uh, field of economics. Also at, on a personal level, he was a very sort of had a big influence on, on the students personally, and uh, uh, he was uh, he was quite tough in conflict with the, all with the others, more conservative economists uh, within the
1: uh,
0: university,
1: yeah.
0: and uh, he managed to to sort of uh, Uh, put them out in the coal, you might say. And basically, it was pretty much the same that happened in the United States as well, you know, with uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises, he wasn't able to find any work at all on on, uh, any of the universities over there. So basically, the the inflation is, they won the battle within the economics profession, and uh, they won the uh, sort of, they were the favored people among the politicians, and all the other economists were just shoved out in the in the cold, and they stayed there for pretty much uh, year up to, I, I say, until the twenty first century almost. Yeah, and in stay, the area,
2: they're, they're still in the cold <laughs> to a yeah, large extent, still,
0: but there are many more more people now. Uh, definitely, wish wish sort of count themselves as the Austrian uh, economists uh, in, in the United States, also in the universities there, so it's improving. But in, you know, it's it's uh, two or three generations of uh, economists in the meantime, who has been uh, educated in Keynesianism and uh, yeah. Uh, monetarism and, and that uh, stuff. And they didn't know anything about Austrian economics, uh, economic school. So, I think, when, when you, when you have this revolution within the field of economics, uh, economics,
1: uh,
0: or, which uh, sort of uh, uh, changed everything, it, it sort of put Economics upside down. Uh, we we cannot expect that uh, the inflation policy, uh, the monetary policy, monetary economics is something that can be taught in uh, uh, you know to our kids in uh, what you call it grundskole. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, when they are children, pub, public, yeah. school, um, public school, public school, yeah, yeah,
2: the first so couple of years, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, and then and also the economics profession has made it so immensely complex what they are dealing with. So it's not natural to teach uh, children and the youth uh, about this.
2: So no, I think, no, it's I think, convoluted. <laughs> yeah, it's because it needs to be. Otherwise, people will call out fraud. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I don't think it's a, a conspiracy uh, which is ongoing uh, these days. But it might have been sort of a conspiracy at the time around the 20s and the 30s, yeah. 30s 100 years ago. We call it open to that idea.
2: Yeah, I, I'm reading a book at the moment called The White Pill by Michael Malice about the Soviet Union and the, the East Bloc and all of that. Okay. and And like the it's it's kind of stunning to, to hear about how, you know, science was the great savior of the world, in, uh, and everyone thought so in the beginning of the 20th century. And when industrialism happened, there's all of these theories of how to manage it properly. And this is where all of these ideas stem from, like from Marxism to, to Keynesianism, but it's all like... We have to figure out how to plan this. So they all come from that that viewpoint, and it's never from the viewpoint of "oh, it's going to fix itself if we just let people be," uh, because that that was not. <clears throat> if that was the case, the universities wouldn't be of much use, would they? Like, and uh, the the disciplines of the so called social sciences would be called out for what they are. They're not sciences. They're opinions. Like social Mm. science isn't science. Like science Mm. is supposed to be about atoms and planets and gravity and numbers. And, but it's not supposed to be about people. Like you, Mm. you can't, you can't really make a science about people because people are different and people change over time. The Mm. market is dynamic. And so so you need, so you need this other approach. And that other approach is, is praxeology and a priori reasoning and first principles Mm. thinking. And, uh, but I guess that's why why Mises in particular was so unpopular, because it's basically saying that we can't apply science to economics, it's saying that science is not enough, or mm. science doesn't work here. We need another, at least empirical science, I would call a priori science just as much as of a science as a, a priori, posteriori, mm. even more, because because it's 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 pure reasoning and like you mm. run into logical paradoxes you realize that that's not possible and you have to figure out something else and that was obviously wrong because it led to a paradox but mm. uh and it's so fascinating but from what i know of about Keynesianism and the ideas of John, John Maynard Keynes is that his basic idea for for why inflation was good was that Every time a hundred krona bill or a hundred dollar bill is exchanged between two people, uh, you create that much value and you add it to the economy, and therefore you need inflation to incentivize people to do this more often. So you get this concept called the velocity of money.
0: What
2: mm. what he what he didn't realize is like if you have inflation, then like. <laughs> If you have two percent inflation, then every time that a hundred dollar bill is changed, it's not it's not a hundred dollars; it's ninety eight dollars. So so it all it it, it all equals mm. to the same amount of value in the end because you can't mm. you can't print value out of thin air. But mm. what it does at the same time is, is that it incentivizes people to focus more and more on consumer goods and mm. less and less on on uh, on uh, uh, Capital goods and and quality goods. So so you sacrifice quality for quantity. That that's mm. basically what inflation does. Yeah. And that's why we have all this overconsumption, and we have all these container ships with shit from China that is shipped to Europe so much so that people like have to open Christmas presents for two days straight, and you, you know all <laughs> of this bullshit consumerist crap that is everywhere. Yeah, and then then they just have to spend it. As yeah, you just have to spend it. And yeah. then we try to solve environmental problems within that framework. Yeah, and it's just it, not possible. You cannot uh, have it's insane. It's, it's crazy. completely insane. You cannot yeah. have uh, exponential growth every year and at the same time believe that you can stop uh, overconsumption from like yeah. if you if if there is an environmental problem it's yeah. over consumerism, and that's what you need yeah. to stop. And like, you need to like fix the fucking money, fix the world. That's that's Those that's people won't.
0: Want, people want not both. You know, they they want the free free lunch.
2: Yeah, they do. <laughs> and I think that yeah. I had a conversation with Giacomo Suka about this yesterday. Very interesting one about that. That's that's a very strong urge within humans. Like, uh, we we talked about the lockdowns and like. People say that people can realize that you can't have a free lunch and that this won't work, but we have to do something. It's the, the That's the next part of that sentence. So that, mm. But the politicians have to do something. It's yeah. better than doing nothing. When yeah. when almost always the opposite is true. They should have been doing nothing mm. and, and let people take a hit yeah. uh, and, and take the fall and learn something from it and grow stronger yeah. afterwards like that. But but instead we—that's the way it should be. That's yeah, but we, keep pretending. Be. Totally agree.
0: Yeah, we, we but keep pretending. Yeah, we keep pretending there's at... a free lunch. <laughs> it, but if we want to look at where this all comes from, the idea that you need some planners, yeah. I, I write a little bit about that in my book because, uh, you know, the Rockefeller Rockefeller Foundation. They uh, spent a lot of money on universities around the world and uh, yeah. especially five universities in Europe. They received a lot of funding and then uh, they, they got, they, they received a letter also from some professors in Stockholm in Sweden. And they said that uh, Sweden is a fantastic, yeah. um, uh, society where you can do scientific research within the field of economics, economics because it's uh, um, it's very stable. It's sort of uh, we have the uh, we don't we we have the same culture here all over the place, uh, we don't have a lot of immigration, so it's the perfect laboratory, <laughs> yeah have social uh, scientific research. Well, they they weren't awarded the, the biggest grants. But um, uh, I think one of the reasons why Erdogan uh, Frisch managed to get so much money from the Foundation was that he really believed in social engineering and central planning. And he was a big admirer of the Soviet the, you know, the system in the Soviet yeah. Union. And he believed more or less all the lies that uh, the Kremlin uh, spouted out about uh, the economic growth numbers that they had there. And he in a letter he wrote to one of his uh, adversaries, uh, actually, within economics, he wrote that in the Soviet Union, they have eight percent growth per year on average. And a few oh, yeah. years afterwards he ch- he said, No, I now believe they have ten or more ten or more ten percent or more uh economic growth in Soviet Union. Yeah, right. It was it was all bullocks, you know, because it was so backwards over there. It was possible at all yeah. not having a market economy and having any growth at all, you know, it was yeah. uh, basically overconsumption of uh of resources and uh pure chaos over there. But uh, probably he wasn't alone when it came to when it came to believing those lies that came from uh, from Moscow. I think many, many uh, scientists uh, yep. and uh, professors around them, the, the whole world, they believed in this experiment and they wanted to believe that uh, that the natural sciences could be used within the social sciences and especially within the common. Yeah, this
2: is what this book, The White Pill is about that I'm reading at the moment. I know Luke can recommend it as well. He just finished it. I'm I'm still working on it. But it's a lot about this and how the academics of the West were very reluctant to see the truth about the Soviet Union because they so wanted these ideas to be correct. And like this, they wanted this experiment to to be Hmm. the shit like but it it wasn't the shit it was just shit (laughs) and uh, and it was much worse than it basically the whole east block was a giant prison and everyone was a was in in prison you couldn't own anything it was very inhumane and like a completely horrible place uh for a hundred years completely Completely vile and evil in every sense of the world. Word, there was nothing good about it. And like what Mises pointed out so so nicely, like with most people when they talk about the Soviet Union, they say uh, and communism in general, they say there's an incentive problem because people don't have the correct incentives. But you have quite a good incentive when you have a gun pointed to your head. Like you you are going to work. The, the The problem is not the incentive. The problem is that there's no price signal. And therefore, the market hmm. doesn't work. So, so someone has to decide. Oh, we're going to uh, we're going to manufacture forty thousand tons of nails this year, and then yeah. the factory manufactures one nail uh, with a weight of forty thousand tons. Like, hmm. and that's exactly what happened. They they, yeah. they had no they they had no hmm. nothing worked because no one knew ex- what, what to produce because there was no price signal, and yeah. and. Mises wrote a lot about this and pointed it out very clearly. And uh, yeah, it's, it, the Austrian pers- perspective can give you so much short, so many shortcuts to these incidents. Yeah. I, I know that there's a book about, uh, by Hoppe called A Theory About Capitalism and Socialism, where he describes the different hmm. aspects of different types of socialism. And hmm. one, one chapter he describes social democracy. And the book was written in the 80s. And it's like reading a prediction of. Where Sweden is going the next forty years, and it played out yeah. exactly as he described. Yeah. It. With uh, yeah, he yeah. predicted all of it, and Compe, uh, Compe is a genius. Yeah, and, and he, he writes very well. His, yeah, mm-hmm. and he got expelled from his university. And he's probably yeah. the best econo- living economist today. Like yeah, and other things like the the Nobel so called Nobel Prize in econ- economics, uh, which isn't really a Nobel Prize. I mean the 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 and, most use, useless Nobel prizes there are aren't really Nobel Prizes. It's the peace price and the and the economics prize and maybe the price in literature and those are the only prices that people talk about and they're complete bullshit all three of them. Uh,
1: especially
2: <laughs> the economics prize. But I realized uh, I, I knew that Hayek got the price for economics back in the seventies. What I didn't know before hmm. yeah. What I didn't know that it was shared. He got it Uh, With a guy called Jan Mudol, a Swedish super socialist. That, you know, uh,
1: I've uh, read that story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Him and his wife wanted to take uh, 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 handicapped babies from their parents and put them in foster (laughs) homes and such. So, so, but they had to give something to the other side as well, because you you can't just give it to this capitalist, evil capitalist there. You have to give it to this nice baby stealing Mm. socialist as well. Uh, I mean, and, it just shows that academia is full of this, uh and you can see it today. I mean all sorts of elites it's 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 kind of strange that when people get a lot of money without cost to themselves like with undeserved undeserved amounts of money, like Hollywood actors, for instance, <laughs> uh, t- or yeah careful now, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry if I offended any blue haired people but but uh. Uh, we can see these tendencies in everything, in, in media, like how, how these ideas are pushed over and over again. I know that when the war in Ukraine happened, uh, there was a news segment on, on public service television in Sweden, where they, called, they, they tried to explain oligarchs to people, the, the phenomenon of oligarchs. And they said, literally, that after the Soviet Union fell, the biggest capitalistic experiment in history started. And that's when the oligarchs were formed. So it was not because of the old system, but because of this capitalistic experiment after the Soviet Union. So yeah. even even after like the fall of the Berlin Wall and where everyone could see that this was just a giant prison, they still, to this day, do not fully admit that, that socialism doesn't work. They can't, mm. because mm. They, they won't
0: bite the hand that feeds them.
2: That's mm. basically
0: it. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's I kind of agree with you on that one. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting what you mentioned about the uh, the, the Nobel Prize, which is yeah. isn't really a Nobel Prize uh, because Erwin Niedermayer, the Norwegian professor and the oh, okay. the economist, he was the first one who received that prize in 1969. Oh, yeah. So oh. they re- they rewarded him for for his quasi science. Um, yeah. uh, at the first possible uh, opportunity, they had. It's given um, up
2: by the Swedish Riksbank, right? Yeah, uh, they're they're parts of the URI, which, which which is laughable in itself. Like
1: <laughs> you're, <laughs>
2: you're getting a price in economics from a counterfeiter. Oh, yeah. lucky you! <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess uh, night he was probably quite proud of himself. He didn't think much about that. No, no, uh, no. So it's a it's an fascinating uh, history, the history of inflation and all the theoretical things that happened. And you mentioned also Keynes and his idea on why inflation was good for the society. And I think he was quite influenced by what he saw when prices fell in the 1920s in uh, the UK. They had a Period there with with some kind of, some degree of, in, of deflation and also in previous periods mm-hmm. as well. And they saw that it was difficult uh, for, for, for instance, factory owners who experienced uh, that it was a deflation, it was increased competition, increased productivity, and uh, the cost uh, of production, they fell and they, they had to lower the prices on the products. And uh, when when they experienced the deflation in those areas, they also wanted to, the unions, the workers, to accept uh, lower uh, wages, mm-hmm. uh, lower lower pay. And uh, uh, it was very difficult to convince the union leaders to to yes. accept lower wages. That's but, never very uh, inflation popular. Inflation could fix that. Because when you introduced inflation to the calculation, oh. then uh, people, they felt that they became, uh, that they, they got a higher salary and higher uh, payment from, for the work they were doing when they were in reality receiving a lower yeah. payment because the value of the money had gone down. Yeah. So this uh, money in, um, uh, what do you call it, a money illusion? Yeah, uh, it was important uh, to 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 Keynes, I think, and his uh, and what and it was an important uh, reason why he became a proponent of inflation.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, to
2: the people scared of deflation, the 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 obvious example is electronics and, and computer hardware, uh, uh, like because that, there you have a massive deflation, like. This phone, for instance, like mm. this would have been James Bond's wet dream uh, 40 years ago or even 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, and if if someone was to construct such a device in the 90s with the same power as this one has today, uh, that would have costed like $20 million or something. Mm. And now it's affordable to almost everyone on Earth. And, mm. uh, and that is a massive deflation. But still, the... That industry is not dead at all. It's a thriving industry, and the same goes for computer hardware. Especially the price per megabyte, it's just been go, uh, going down by orders of magnitude every year. Since mm. it, uh, you know what, what's it called, Moore's law, uh, still in, still in play. To uh, maybe that curve has flattened out a bit, but it's still there. I mean, mm. uh, and those industries are, are thriving they're not, they're not on the brink of destruction
0: by any means, hmm. like, uh, the, the, the economist would probably argue that this is due to inflation. Yeah, they are thriving. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, Wait, which is just where inflation, then uh, we wouldn't have
2: that success. Uh, within, uh, 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 and imagine, uh, just take inflation out of this. And that means yeah. that people will, of higher quality of the phones and people won't throw them away and be a bit mm. more careful with them. That's the only difference. Like mm. t- two to three percent more careful with your phone, increase the length, mm. life length of your phone by two to three percent.
0: Is mm. that so bad?
2: <laughs> I don't think it is.
0: No. Rune, and this, this is has this been
2: an uh, absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, I I have to cut it short here soon, because uh, I have to take my son to his martial arts class. I, know, <laughs> so I, wish, I wish we could uh, could have a longer conversation, but I'm running short of time. So before before we end, though, uh, Luke, I'm going to let you in. If you have anything to add or any other questions for Runa while we have him on. We still have like 10 minutes.
1: Runa, to be honest uh, yeah this has been a, a great chat thanks for telling us more about the book I I feel like we'll we'll have to have you on again and I look forward to meeting you in person someday hope that's uh, sooner than than later uh Absolutely. we're all within the we're all within the the region uh, shame you can't come to this uh this Berrigan thing but hopefully there's something else coming up but yeah the the only other thing I, I wanted to maybe ask is uh, what do you think that the uh since you produced the book what What is your view of the future? How do you think things are going to go now that you've read what you've read and written what you've
0: Hmm. written? Well, first of all, I'm I'm very happy that I discovered uh, Bitcoin and gradually begin to understand more about what it can be sort of uh, in the future for us. And uh, I I wrote there one day on Twitter that uh, Bitcoin is uh, sort of like a bridge between uh, um between slavery and freedom. And, uh, so it's up to us to, to start walking, uh, on that bridge and, uh, uh gradually make that transition, I think. And, uh, uh, so, so that gives some, some promise. At the same time, I think it's important to, to not uh, on the, Buy Bitcoin, but also to use it, and the six newt sales, and uh, as I also write in my book, it's important to be open to people that if they want to pay you in other things than the national currency, you should accept it, and you should even invite them to do that. So when I sell my used uh, things, you know uh, skis and bikes, uh, which I have no use for anymore, i I I tell the buyers, uh, and those who are interested in this, if they want to pay me in Bitcoin or silver coins, even or gold coins, if it's something valuable, it's up to them, just to make them used to the idea that it's uh, completely natural to use anything else than the national currency, in our case then. And also, uh, there's a there's an ongoing discussion in the Bitcoin community should be sort of uh, should we try to improve the system which we have today? Or should we just leave it as it is and uh, make the transition on our own to the new Bitcoin system? And I know that Jeff Booth has argued that if you try to improve the current system, you only harden it and make it uh, more harmful don't know if I follow him, follow him completely. I think it's important to put pressure on the politicians in order to make them uh, uh facilitate um, a less harmful and a, and a more promising transition from the existing system and into uh, the new system, to sort of force their hands a little bit and, 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 uh, and uh, and try to, to spend at least a little bit of energy in order to, to make this transition a bit smoother and uh, a, a little bit less violent uh, than it uh, can be. Because I think it's possible. I think it's possible to, 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 to have a, a slightly better uh, transition than if uh, you just let to let the, the current system run its course and uh, let it end in a total collapse. I think oh. we can do something which uh, uh, it makes it impossible perhaps to avoid that uh, hard landing, you might say. The, this is funny Funny that you should say this as a
2: last comment because there's so much pull on here because I, I think, uh, yeah, I've written a lot about this as myself and I think Jeff's point is that uh the uh i'm putting words in his mouth now but i from what i understand of it it's it's like the the monetary incentive the incentive for politicians to look after their own house and try to uh rob the system of as much as possible during the time they're elected is that incentive is stronger than than we can ever expect you know trying to change their minds by by democratic means so so it is that bleak and the, the thing I've written about, uh, about the smooth transition or a fast transition as opposed to a slow transition is that but the, what people are most afraid of is like, if the transition is too fast, it's going to be violent. What they leave out is that we're living in violence now. We're being violated again uh, every second of our lives. We're having our, our, the fruits of our labor stolen by violent means through counterfeiting so hmm. the faster we stop that the faster we stop the violence like if you view the the first world war as something that hasn't ended yet it's a war hmm. between the governments and their their subjects then of course you would want this to play out as, as fast as possible because you want to stop the violence this is stopping the violence the violence hmm. might, we might not see it but uh, uh you know if you draw the vectors to to their ultimate end, there's always the, the barrel of a gun somewhere, uh, hmm. throwing you in jail if you don't do what they tell you to do. And uh, hmm. that's what we're trying to get away from. So so that's, yeah. that's the counter argument there, just to play the devil's advocate here at the end yeah. of the conversation.
0: Fast transition man. It's uh, something that I really agree that we, we need to have. Yeah. So, hmm.
1: Great last, um, yeah. uh, great closing comments there. <laughs> Good setup for the next one. Since we're we're close to out of time. Uh, Rune, is there anywhere you'd like to direct our listeners to? Where can they find you? Where can they find your book? Yeah, where can you find the English version? That's, uh, I'm
2: interested in that. Uh, and I think our yeah. listeners are too.
0: Yeah, you can find the English version as an ebook and a paper a softcover on Amazon. So you can order it from Amazon and uh, you will soon find the German version there as well. I think in perhaps in April or May or something you. you find the German version, and you can follow me on Twitter. That's the most yeah.
1: And I'm you'll include your Twitter, Twitter handle on the on the show notes. Yeah, you Runa Oost, Ostgard. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks so much again, Luna. It's been uh, great talking to you. Uh, Really appreciate the time. And uh, as I said, look forward to uh, interacting with you in the future. So this has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us and thanks for listening.
2: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Luna. I enjoyed this a lot, enjoyed this conversation a lot, and uh,
0: looking forward to seeing you in real life. Take care.
1: Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.